This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the intersection of magic work and economic justice. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Anna A.X. Mina. In episode one, we talked about the silence of the desert. But in the morning, there are many sounds. Crickets. Birds. I record a truck in the distance. And then, of course, there's the wind blowing through the cracks and caves and into the valley. All of us quiet down as the heat arrives. If last episode was about motion, today's episode is about stillness. The kind of stillness you find in the middle of the day in the desert when the sun compels it. The kind of stillness that emerged in 2020 when so many of us stayed in our homes. I find myself sitting cross-legged on a tent floor in the Bedouin host campsite, tucked away in a corner of rocks. Across from me is Sherwan DeWitt, another artist on the residency. We're in an extraordinary place. In our immediate vicinity, we're sitting inside a tent assembled by our Bedouin hosts, and I am just staring out at an expanse of, I think, maybe the most massive and or endless desert I have ever personally seen or visited. Wadi Rum is just an expanse of earth tones and of the most interesting rock formations. <laughs> on the one hand, we kept saying earlier that they look like those drippy sand castles on the beach that we made as kids, but they were made by giants and they're sitting here rising out of the desert or that the rocks sometimes look like mycelium, like mushroom outgrowths from the ground, but all of it is at once big and imposing, but then also deeply intricate because this is large and kind of monolithic rock, but it's also worn away by the specificities of time and the elements. And so wind and water, as we've been exploring together, it's been really amazing to see these formations from afar, but then to approach them and see the details of of them up close. Like the layers of sedimentation in this rock and also just how humbling Yes. That is right. Yes. To think of how tiny of a pencil thin line our lives are <laughs> in the scheme of this rock is very humbling. brought a fancy camera to Wadi Rum, but ended up not taking too many photos. But as we talked about in the previous episode, you've seen this desert. You've seen it in movies, in films, in images. So it's interesting to try to tell you about the desert, a place defined by so much silence through sound. What's left is feelings, and those feelings in turn convey stories, and those stories communicate a view of the world. Throughout the day, I learned, the Bedouins know where the best shade is. As the earth rotates in the vast expanse of space, the sun appears to move through the sky along what the ancients would call the ecliptic. The shade and shadows lengthen, appear and vanish intermittently, and by nighttime, the zodiac signs appear along the sun's same trajectory. Time moves along in the desert at its own pace. The types of conversations I have here feel different, more raw, more vulnerable. Hi, my name's Sherwin DeWitt. How would I describe myself? (laughs) These days, I would say as a writer and a visual artist and also as someone who has spent a long time working on redesigning different systems to provide more just alternatives, along with many other people, of course. So I think I'm always starting anew, always becoming a student of something else, but within that newness, always finding 
through lines, through everything else. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, jumping into something new is really scary, mm, career-wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like you've embraced that. Yeah. What does that look like for you? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's always been about following my intuition, but also what I'm learning from where my feet are now. So for example, I started my career working in public health. At the beginning, I was particularly focused on HIV and the types of work that could be assembled to provide holistic care for Mm. people who are living with HIV, including forms of counseling, forms of community and economic support and cooperatives and coalitions. So being focused on public health for quite a while led me to working in rural areas with Mm. people who are HIV positive, specifically in Eastern Rwanda. And while I was doing that work, Everyone who I worked with was a farm family or a part of a farm family. And so as it is for for many people who are dealing with a chronic health issue, economic questions become very important to their wellness. As I was having conversations that I thought were focused on health, agriculture was coming up all the time. Do we have enough food this year? to feed ourselves? Are we harvesting enough crops this year to sell so that we have an extra budget for things like education, for pleasure and for joy? And I realized that something that I think many people have been witness to, which is this terrible feeling that we are giving people medicine. And when I say medicine, I mean many forms of medicine, whether it's literal medical treatment or otherwise, but then this terrible sinking feeling that they're returning to the conditions that made them sick in the first place. In a related way, I proceeded to work on microfinance within agriculture Mm. and the types of financial products and services and support that are offered to people living in rural areas. And after that, I ended up working in U.S. politics, wow. which which I think, like many people, was prompted a bit by the jolt of the Trump election. Right. It meant a lot to me to be useful to the people where I was born right. and uh, resisting the allure of OPP, other people's problems, mm-hmm. and returning mm-hmm. to our own problems. Yeah. So I worked organizing around state legislative races for a few years. Then... After that, ended up working in philanthropy, which is a complex space. There are wonderful intentions and wonderful humans embedded within philanthropy. There are also insidious motivations and I think unchallenged power that sit within Mm. philanthropy that I'm deeply uncomfortable with, that I get deeply angry about. Mm. If I'm being honest, I can try to find a nicer way to package it. But I think where I've ended up now is a result of spending many years feeling very angry or very outraged, maybe is the more specific word. But of course, all of it's together in one pot. I think more than anything, I felt like I got closer and closer to where power is held and felt more and more horrified, though I never entered with naivete exactly. I think it became harder to see on a daily basis. And so that ability to live between so many worlds, Mm -hmm. both in terms of access to power, access to culture, feels like it's such a critical role that you play as a Mm -hmm. translator. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to talk about the fact that we're at an artist residency. Yeah. So you have a creative practice as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about 
your artwork or your creative work and how that fits into these really heady and difficult conversations about power that we're having right now. Yeah, so I'm a writer, first of all. I think I I do a lot of writing and I think like many writers struggle with how much of it I want to share with people or I think more accurately how much I think is worthy mm-hmm. of being shared. I also particularly paint and draw, but I think my subjects when it comes to art and even to writing are generally about the teeny tiny details of what it means to be a person who is alive. Embodied cognition is the idea that our minds, our way of thinking, arise not just from the brain, but from the brain, the body, and the experiences our body is having. One recent example of embodied cognition that most of us went through is lockdown. For me, the years of on and off lockdown created an experience of time that molds and blends. It feels different from the years preceding it and years we've since been through. In the strange time of lockdown, I began to think differently. And the hermit card, one of the major arcana in tarot, derives from the Greek eremites, meaning person of the desert. Someone who's solitary but not alone, wandering but not lost. What have the past years meant for us when so many of us entered that hermit life? So much of society wants to move on, but in the intimacy of a conversation embodied in this ancient desert, Share One and I turn back time to the early days of 2020. The public health emergency officially is over, according to WHO. Mm. But I feel like the effects of the emergency are still to be felt. Yeah. So what has this been like for you? And what are you thinking about now with regards to the public health crisis that we've just been through and the set of crises we're entering today? Ooh, so many things to, <laughs> to unpack. First of all, just it's been so hard, you know, collectively. And I think that the first emotion that comes through for me when I think about the last few years is just being so deeply concerned all the time yeah. about people I love, about communities that mean so much to me. And first of all, just feeling really worried about their physical well-being, but even more so their emotional well-being, because there's the, you know, the first layer, which we all know very well of COVID precautions, COVID exposure, COVID risk. And the first few months of the pandemic in particular were all of us obsessing over that and doing a sort of citizen calculus, right, of... From where I'm sitting, it's whether it's my apartment, my home, someplace that is not my home because some people were stuck, right, in places that they didn't intend to be. How do I keep myself safe? How do I keep other people safe? Which was something I was really worried about because my partner is a doctor. We started sequestering several weeks before everyone we knew because we were terrified that we could potentially expose people at a greater level of vulnerability than ourselves. Mm and be responsible for making them sick. And then on top of it, I think we all started to shift to consider what are the emotional consequences of this, of not being able to see each other, of simply being in constant fear. And eventually for me, and I think this has persisted until now, particularly for people from marginalized groups, what does it do to people to feel left behind? Yeah to feel less cared for, to feel less worthy of consideration in people's humanity. And I'm still thinking about that. There are still many people who are immunocompromised, who are disabled, or even just people who don't have access to the luxury of 
working from home or working within safe conditions to really put their health at risk continuously. I think that's taken up a lot of my thinking over the last few years, in addition to the practicalities of just logistically, how do we take care of each other? Thankfully, I've made wonderful friends okay. and and allies in or, or co-conspirators more more yeah. specifically in each of those areas, and I've been able to take them with me. The first people I called when I started reading reports in public health about what was happening were my friends who had been a part of the Ebola crisis response and really looking to others for their wisdom about what should we be thinking about. What kind of resources do we need to mobilize and to whom? How do we prioritize the right areas and the right people? What are the mistakes we could make in this process? In my work, in my job, a lot of that was about working with philanthropists, individual and institutional, to point their gaze to these areas. There are communities that are going to need lots of resources and fast. They're going to need them to be unrestricted, so not tied up in strings of bureaucracy, paperwork, reporting. You know, I I remember a friend of mine telling me that during Ebola, they had been given a lot of money to set up clinical structures for Ebola treatment, but that person dictated that those structures could only be made with certain types of material. So they were staring at a bank account full of money that they couldn't use given the resources or the materials that were available to them where they were. And so a lot of my work was about translating these problems to people who hold money and who hold many forms of resources to say, please don't make this mistake. There are better ways to do it. And there are so many people who can help you think about the best way to redistribute what you have because now is the time. I think there, and I am not alone, there are many people who do this work. Uh, A lot of us were reaching a fever pitch, right? Especially turning to people who personally have millions and billions of dollars saying, listen, the house is on fire and you're sitting on a giant tank of water. Right. And I need you (laughs) to to open up the tap and we're going to point it in the right directions or we're going to ask the right people who are more proximate to these problems about where you need to be sharing it. But the key is you need to share more Mm. and you need to do it quickly. And so in my job, that is how I was approaching that. And that seems like one of the big things I think emerging out of COVID. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a macro conversation shifting in philanthropy mm. about the nature of giving. Right. For our audience, you know, frequently nonprofits, funds are given in a restricted way, specific line items for how the money needs to be spent. Mm-hmm. The example you gave of how materials are spent, right? It's yeah. often not seen by people who are working with a nonprofit how much restrictions there are mm-hmm. on the money given. But now it seems like, at least from my perspective, there seems to be a macro shift in that conversation. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. what do you think? Is do, or do you see that conversation changing in philanthropy or is it mostly a lot of interesting press releases? Yeah, I mean, many feelings about this. Yeah. I think the conversation is shifting more and more if you are in these circles, if you are attending talks or spending time in these spaces, you'll find that more and more of these conversations are about equity or about sharing power or shifting power. I think the challenge is that You'll hear lots of enthusiasm about it. When you look at the numbers, it's not following yet. Okay. That's not to say it never will, right? Change takes time. And I think it's 
on the one hand, important to keep that in mind. And I also think it's important to honor people's frustration that this is not happening faster because people are standing watching this happen and saying, well, what else do you need to know? Who else do you need to hear from? What else can we provide you to make this move? And I think we hear this is an echo of conversations we have about racial equity in the U.S. too, right? Which is, well, we've come so far. Or can't you see that we're trying our best and not being able to reach the point in the conversation with people who are holders of power to say, just because we've come really far, just because we have made gains, doesn't mean we stop now. Right. I think a question we should all sit with more often and we should return to because there is not a single answer is when we make judgments of people who are living with less than us. Mm. And we do it unknowingly when we say we'd like to educate women living in poverty about how to make money as if we assume that women who have less money are that way because they didn't have the skills or because they didn't have the knowledge. And that, in a way, and I think in many parts of many cultures, is a discussion about whether or not people deserve it. Have they done the right type of work? Have they made the right types of choices when actually we just had better choices available to us if we are lucky enough to not be in that situation? And so I think I try to ask myself that frequently, even with our best of intentions, what judgments are we carrying of people in which particular judgments that particularly point to this idea that if we are doing well, it's because we deserved it. If we are safe, it's because we've done the right things to be deserving of safety when I don't think that's true at all. It's something I hope to keep returning to and having more and more observations about. It's something I want to hear other people ask more often too. Remember how old you were when you first learned to shuffle? I was so proud of myself when I first learned. Uh, yeah, I remember being so excited. I don't know the exact <laughs> age, but I remember, yeah, trying to show everybody that exactly. I could do it. Yeah, and that perfect fold. Yeah, yes. especially adults. Yeah. In the midst of lockdown, I began studying tarot deeply, listening to podcasts, reading books, shuffling and reshuffling the decks, and studying each card. These old images became a companion on a long journey of understanding the nature of crisis. The deck we're using today is the Mixed Signals deck, designed by M. Eifler, our Season 3 guest. It's a deck that is a combination of digital and analog signals, and it's kind of mesmerizing to watch it being shuffled. The act of shuffling is a reminder of the true nature of time and reality. When we shuffle the deck, we're capturing a small snapshot of our universe at the moment. The next time we shuffle, our universe will be different, and so will we. So I left my official job about a year ago, and in the time since then, I've been working on soothing and understanding cumulative burnout from many, many years of this type of work, which I think is really common or which I see in many people who I love. I also have been really dealing with feeling deeply disillusioned. And again, not that I was starry-eyed before, but just feeling overwhelmed, right, by the enormity of the problems we face. And I have been asking myself where I can find joy 
in the work again because mm. it has become so laden um, yes. with with worry, with cynicism, for sure. And I really miss the feeling of being set on fire by my work and by the people around me and I am trying to find my way back to that. I think the rest has been necessary, but I've been I keep asking myself what should I do, right? Cuz I mm. feel quite desireless mm. when it comes to making a choice about what to do next. I also am asking myself if part of the answer is bringing more of my identity as a creative into my job because I think I've kept them fairly split. I've been asking myself if it's possible to bring them together, but I also feel like I have no idea how to. <laughs> right, right. For folks listening in, the, there's more green here than normal. There's flowers yeah. here. Things are growing. Mm-hmm. I think for your life right now as yeah. well, from what you described. Yeah. And so the the spread is seed, root, and garden. It's a vertical spread. Mm-hmm. So we'll invite you to draw three cards. The seed will be at the bottom. That's mm-hmm. what's been planted. Mm-hmm. The root is what's growing. That's in the middle. Mm-hmm. What's growing maybe here, maybe over the past few weeks, few months. And then the garden is the conditions that you need to cultivate to allow that seed and root to really grow mm-hmm. and flourish. Mm-hmm. And so... I invite you to do is to draw three cards, mm-hmm. lay them face down, we'll put the deck away, and then we'll turn over the cards and have a conversation. Flipping over my seed card, it says Maker of Wands. Ooh, it's this really beautiful illustration with tools to one side of a knife, a brush, and a pencil, and flowers growing out of a block of wood with a hand reaching towards them. It's a beautiful card yeah, for your seed. I love this. Yeah. And my second card, Four of Stones. Ooh, it's two clear cylinders is how they look to me. And one of them has four spheres inside of it with some hands reaching around the container with the four stones in it. Yeah, these are lovely cards. These are a great kind of baseline, I think, for this conversation. Mm -hmm. The seed, the maker of wands, you may be familiar in tarot. So what we did with this deck is where we took out as much of the gender as we could. Mm-hmm. Much of like the explicit power dynamics. As yeah. could. The maker here is similar to the queen of wands. Mm. The wands is the suit of creativity, the chi, the fire you're looking for. Mm-hmm. The maker here is someone who's mastering it, mm-hmm. who's owning that wand energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a seed has been planted. Maybe that's here in Wadi Rum. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's recently in your life mm-hmm. of a maker, someone who's creative, someone who can find through natural beauty that you see. Mm-hmm. Just like with these flowers in this block. Yeah. Just the way you described the rocks, the stones that we see around here. And you're assembling them, learning to put those together in a way that's really beautiful. And you're mastering a new craft. Well, it's a craft that you've been doing for a while. Mm-hmm. But you're reaching a new layer, a new, mm-hmm. new level of this craft. And what's growing out of it is an interesting one because it's the four of stones. The stones are the suit. The equivalent in Rider Waite Smith deck is the pentacles. Mm-hmm. Or coins, they represent the earth. They represent labor, career work, sometimes money. I forgot to mention that the wands represent fire, by the way. Mm. And you're talking so much about fire. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a fire that's being planted. Mm-hmm. But the root that's growing is based in the earth. It's based in the practical now. Mm-hmm. And the four of stones here is illustrated is that you have some decisions to make mm-hmm. about what you bring with you, mm-hmm. what you use to fill up your cup, mm. and how you're going to build towards that wow and so here 
Their decisions. Uh, decisions. <laughs> <laughs> each of them require work. Mm-hmm. But each of them build towards something new, something stronger, something better. Mm. And in the tarot, the water, even though this is a suit of the stones of work, the water element is very present in this card. Mm. And the water element represents the emotions. <laughs> Got lots of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so there's emotional work mm-hmm. in addition to the practical matters of how you build these things yeah. together. What's blossoming for you in this time in your life, in this time after some rest, some much needed rest, is now new blooms, new blossoms. And they're not just happening, you're tending to them. You're making them, you're mastering them. So now what's taking root is the fact that you are allowing things to build up again. Mm. You can bring that intentionality, you can bring that emotional tuning in that you've been doing to bear so that you can build in this new stage in a new way that combines both the creative spirit and the emotional balance that's going Mm. to allow you to more sustainably do the work that you need to do. Especially seeing this this Maker of Wands card first felt really kind of emotional for me. I'm always looking for signs of affirmation that my creative work is a part of me that is essential and maybe is the core of who I am or how I see myself. Mm. I'm projecting myself into this card very much, but I was delighted to see that it was a knife, a brush, and a pencil because my three most visited forms of expression are cooking, painting, and writing. Oh, wow. Amazing. (laughs) So I felt really happy to see those things. There's something I used to say to myself when I was younger, when I was maybe 19. I used to say I I really pride myself on making something out of nothing Mm. or just, you know, creating things. And I think I've neglected that part of myself. And in the neglect, I've stopped believing that that's who I am. And so it's really powerful to have the opportunity to receive some affirmation that that is still who I am. So I'm really grateful. Yeah. I love that you mentioned cooking as a creative practice. Yeah. What's, what's your cooking practice like? Oh, man. It's so much. <laughs> I think for me, first and foremost, cooking and the real gift of being entrusted to feed people right. is about emotional association about connection about feeling cared for but even just about what what it prompts us to remember because i've been lucky to eat at delicious restaurants and to have wonderful things and to try many cuisines but the food that i remember was always made for me by people who loved me there's nothing i feel more instinctively that i can do than to feed my beloved few as mfk fisher said my mom is a pastry chef. My dad was a chef before he came up, became a professor. On most trips, I always bring my chef's knife with me (laughs) because it feels like an extension of my body. And I I always say hell is other people's knives. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. That's a true chef speaking. So I love to cook. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Should we take a look at the garden? Yes. (laughs) So again, the garden is the conditions that are going to allow, especially this maker of wands, but Mm -hmm. also this four of stones. Okay. To grow. It's the Nine of Wands. Mm. And there's an illustration here of a hand reaching across what look like nine branches that are kind of all different shapes and sizes with kind of some smaller outgrowth coming off of them. But you can really see the, the strain in the hands. It's <laughs> but, intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's doing the work. Mm-hmm. 
I see the nine of wands in two lenses, and as we're talking about, there's no duality, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a message of mindfulness, I think. Mm -hmm. I think of the nine of wands, and you can see it in the stream. It's often seen as the card of burnout. Mm -hmm. The progression of the wands suit is a spark that's a, a new wand growing, mm -hmm. and steadily, ironically, the thing that feeds us, you use these words, the fire, mm -hmm. leads to burnout, also mm -hmm. a fire word. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes fire fuels, and mm -hmm. sometimes it consumes. Mm -hmm. And so the nine of wands here, I think, is a dual message. One is follow that spark, mm -hmm. that new spark that's in you right now, that creativity mm -hmm. that you're trying to figure out how to marry it with this professional life, this amazing professional life you built. Mm -hmm. The nine of wands is saying, yeah, go for it. Bring all those wands together because the thing that inspires you creatively and the things that inspire you intellectually, this being things that inspire you in terms of your passion for justice and equity, mm -hmm. when they come together, they're stronger. Mm -hmm. We're all stronger together. Mm -hmm. And it's also a reminder, a message. Make sure you find that balance. Because when you feel like you have to grip all of them too tightly, mm -hmm. that's when they become a burden. Mm -hmm. But when you can allow them to all feed you and nourish you, the way you've talked about food, the way you've talked about the rocks here, that's where all the ones can work together and together they're going to be significantly stronger. Use this time in your life to figure out the way that they're going to come together as you start to build your cup, build those stones. Something really beautiful is starting to emerge. Mm. I've been offered wisdom before and sometimes struggled to really integrate it. Yeah. Right? And I think for me particularly, that's because of questions about worthiness, mm. questions about survival, you know, Absolutely. deep anxiety, also fear of showing myself, and also of whether I'm worthy of being seen when I think so much of my work has been about ensuring that others get their due time and recognition, which specifically people who have not been honored in right. the way that they should, it makes me fearful of harming other people, of um, stepping into light that maybe was not was not for me, you mm. know. And I think it would help me to have a more abundant and spacious approach to that idea, which is that I I can step into these things in a mindful way without taking them from others. It seems to me like you've, you've just been following your curiosity, but in a very specific way. Yes. Around how power works, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. How inequity Absolutely. happens. Yeah. You started with this great insight. You're talking about how wellness needs economic equity or justice. Yeah. That we can't just like medicine away mm -hmm. the things that make people unwell. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you to go from, my gosh, public health into U.S. politics and then <laughs> philanthropy? I feel like these disciplines, they all speak different languages. That That is true. I think they do. I also love to learn languages. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think a combination of things. I think a real joy in getting to dig into something new. I always call it brain candy. Mm -hmm. um, I love to really, really follow the thread as far as I can go when learning about something. And so being able to do that as a full-time occupation, as a part of my labor, right. feels exciting to me, but also embeds deep anxiety in a way. And I think something I've dealt with for much of my career is always fearing that I don't know enough, mm. that I don't know enough to be assuming these positions of power, which really impact many people. Mm. 
and being deeply afraid of not being worthy of that responsibility. And right. so kind of eternally studious in, in a combination of both joy and enjoyment and deep fear that I can never know enough. I think you've described that for stones. Mm. energy so well that's the work now mm. it's emotional work oh it's so much work <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work it's, it's so hard <laughs> it is so much work yeah but the more you do that work mm -hmm. and replenish yourself the more you'll be in a space to give and i think a key element of that has been breakdown you and i were were speaking just before this about you shared with me the origin of the word crisis meaning sieve or sift and the real need to have breakdown in order to work through and, and reach clarity. That's right. And I have certainly experienced <laughs> my share of breakdowns yes. in the last few years. Yeah. But every time I've reached that point, I've felt so relieved right. on the other side that I allowed myself to touch the bottom because you can see things more clearly from there. Five and Nine is an independent podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. It's co-founded by Darcy Santos, Xiaowei Wang, and me, Anna AX Mina. If you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for episode three, where I will be sitting down for my own coffee to be read. This special season is co-presented with one of many studio, an experienced design and consulting studio connecting people with what it means to be a future ancestor. And most of it was recorded and produced on location in Jordan during a one of many artist residency. The music was recorded live and performed by Hashem bin Nuaitik. If you enjoyed this show, consider leaving us a review or becoming a paid subscriber. Find us at thisis5and9.com, on Apple, Spotify, Google, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we wish you comfort and ease in these difficult times. Remember to breathe deeply, drink plenty of water, and take a moment of rest wherever and whenever you can.